This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Roz Taylor. I'll get straight to the point here. Have you ever heard of Pornhub? Don't worry, no need to answer that question, but I wouldn't be entirely surprised if you had. It's the 10th most popular website in the world. But what you may not have realised is that one of the key people behind it is living in an exclusive part of West London. And in its 14 years of existence, Pornhub has become increasingly controversial. Alexei Mostras and Patricia Clark have been investigating the site for the slow news site Tortoise, and they're with me to talk about what they've uncovered. Welcome to the bunker, Alexei. Hey. And Patricia. Hi. Alexei, Pornhub has got itself a bad reputation in recent years, hasn't it? It has, but only only relatively recently. And this this is the kind of the weird thing that we were starting off with, right? Because Pornhub has been around since 2007. It's like more than a decade old, which is obviously in internet terms makes it quite a veteran. But it's only recently in the last maybe sort of 24 months uh, that people have been asking serious questions about it. And it's a massive business, as you'd expect. Do we know how much money is involved in Pornhub? We do know that in 2018, MindGeek, which is Pornhub's parent company, posted about $450 million uh, in, in annual revenues. So it's a significant generator of cash. We're talking hundreds of millions of pounds rather than tens of millions or, or millions. There are some really vile, upsetting stories behind this. Was there one that particularly jumped out at you as... I mean, there were there were no, no doubt quite a few, but individuals who have really suffered as a result of being exposed in this way on Pornhub. I spoke to a few victims of online sex trafficking, and I think the story that stood out to me the most was one of Kelly Lansfame, who appears on the podcast. She was part of a um, case called the Girls Do Porn Case. This was a website that asked women to, well, they would post ads asking women to do a sort of nude photo shoot. Then those women would ring up and they'd be offered a lot of money and they would sort of be coerced into the photo shoot suddenly becoming a video shoot and actually becoming a, a, a you know, a, a porn film. Then they would travel to some other part of the States and they would be coerced into sex. They would often be raped on camera, Um, and they would be forced to sign papers saying that they had consented. They were told that those videos were never going to be made public, that they would be put on a DVD and sold overseas and only for pay. So don't worry, your family will never see this, your friends will never see this. And then those films would be uploaded to Pornhub because Girls Do Porn actually had a partnership with Pornhub. This started in 2016. Women were complaining from 2016, some of the women were underage. So the, the people featured in the videos, you know, once they'd seen that they had spread everywhere, that they were now on Pornhub, they would be contacted by family members, friends, saying, we've seen these videos of you, what's going on here? They would then contact Pornhub saying, these videos 
of me are online. They were uploaded against my consent. Please delete them. And Pornhub failed to act. And in the case of Girls Do Porn specifically, of course, that I mean, this is an, just an absolutely vile case of coercion. The people involved in that are now two of them are fugitives on the FBI's most wanted list. One of them is a criminal. I think he's in jail now. But so, you know, that that's its own awful, awful thing. But equally bad is the fact that Pornhub failed to act. And I think that's what really stood out to us. And um, speaking to Kelly, you know, she was saying, I, I tried to get my video taken down. My family tried. Um, I Googled it a couple of years later and, and it was still out there because if Pornhub doesn't act, they can't control who downloads the videos. That will end up somewhere else on the internet. And that is just, you know, it's really, really difficult to listen to those stories. So the business model is pretty simple. I mean, anyone can upload a video to Pornhub. All you need is an email address. And that's part of the problem. Seven million videos are uploaded every year. And there are only about six and 30 moderators working at any one time. So how does the site curate its content? Because we don't need to imagine the kind of stuff that's being put up there. We have to be slightly careful when we're talking about figures because a lot of Pornhub and MindGeeks operations are shrouded in, in opacity. So although there are some reports that uh, it has as few as, as six moderators, we don't really know the exact picture in terms of how many moderators it might kind of subcontract work out to. But certainly uh, the allegation is there that it, it does not have enough moderators to cope with the torrent of content that is being uploaded to the site. And you're completely right that until very recently, anyone could upload a video to Pornhub and they only had to, to have an email address to sign up. There was no uh, age verification checks. There was no kind of consent checks. All the moderation was done either by this relatively small number of human moderators or using some kind of AI and technical uh, methodology that Pornhub had put in place. But one of the key allegations is that the systems that they put in place were not sufficient to prevent quite harmful content from being uploaded onto the site. And the evidence on that allegation has got much stronger over the last uh, 24 months as more and more women, more and more alleged victims uh, have come forward with their own examples of how their content was put on Pornhub and then seen and viewed by literally millions and millions of people over a period of, of days, weeks or months with really quite disastrous effects on their lives. There were some pretty shocking human stories in amongst the the numbers. Patricia, tell me a bit about the investigation, because it's um, it's about 50 women are now about to sue Pornhub and alleging that it's a criminal enterprise. That court case has gave you a name to go on, didn't it? Because it's a very secretive operation based in Canada, but that gave you the initial details you needed to start pursuing your investigation. So the initial details we needed actually came from a report by the Financial Times newspaper in December 2020, where they printed a misspelt version of the name of the man who owns the majority shares in, in MindGeek, which is Pornhub's parent company. So they said his name was Bernard Bergamar. And then a few months later, the Canadian newspaper Globe and Mail published an article with a few more details and a correctly spelt name, which was Bert Bergmeier. They told us that this was a man um, from Linz, a small uh, town in Austria. They also published a picture of him at an alumni event from the Chicago Business School 
in 2002. And that was what kind of really kick-started our investigation. I worked with um, Alexi and our colleague Xavier Greenwood. And we sort of went through the list of alumni at school and started just sort of trawling through people who might know this man. And that was what really kick-started the investigation. How long did it take you to track him down? We had a point where we thought this is probably not going to be possible, right? Because no other publication has managed to do this. There's nothing out there. His name yields about two Google results. And I remember Zav um, sent me a message and said, no, I really feel like we can do this. We just need to find one person. So we had a few weeks where we were sort of reaching out to people. And then we finally managed to get in touch with a couple of people who knew some details. And then from several weeks of researching, it suddenly became two days where as we kind of lay out in the podcast, we found contacts, we found his social media, Alexi found some pictures and via some pictures posted by his partner, we were able to find everything. I think it was sort of three days that suddenly everything gained a huge amount of momentum. Yeah, because you um, pursued him basically through central London, didn't you? The journey kind of took us. So it it started out that we thought he was based in China based off sort of corporate records um, and what was published in the FT and the Globe and Mail. And then we thought actually that might be Hong Kong. We had Linz, where he was from, so we thought, well, maybe he's based in Austria. Then when Alexi found his Facebook, actually it said he was in New York. So we thought, great, he's in New York. I remember we had all this talk that maybe Alexi was going to fly out. And and then when Zav found these pictures, we managed to find via EXIF data, which is the data within that, that can be found behind a photo, which tells you sort of which camera it was taken by and so on. We actually managed to find an address. And that address was around the corner from our office in London. Why is it that, that all this sleaze can eventually be traced back to, to expensive addresses in London? You do, you do have to ask yourself, don't you? But did you, you fact you him down to his actual doorstep. Is that right? Yeah, we knew from the exit data that uh, his partner lived or, or at least spent a lot of time in this, in this address. But we didn't know whether he was there with her. He may have been traveling. He may have been living, living in another country altogether. But we decided to go and, and, and check it out. So I, I went down at you know five o'clock in the morning, attracted a bit of attention because it's the sort of street that everyone is very careful of their identity. That Most of the houses are behind big heavy gates and they've got these security guards. Lots of them are kind of former military guys. It's quite a sort of serious street. It's the super rich rather than the normal rich, if I can put it put it that way. And they're, they're very concerned about privacy. So we didn't know what we were going to find there when we when we went there. And we were sort of expecting almost to kind of have a wasted day just sitting in front of a, a gated house. And then sometimes these investigations turn on on luck uh, as much as skill. And at about sort of 8.30 in the morning, he comes down, he comes out of his house. We've spent weeks looking at this guy, weeks looking at pictures of this guy. So you know, me and my producer, Katie, we, we know instantly it's it's him. We get caught kind of by surprise because we were having coffee, like preparing for a long day of a effectively a stakeout uh, ahead of us. And then he comes out like right, right then. So I sort of put everything down, get out of the car and, and go up to him. And I try and be polite, but, you know, also putting across the, the, the main allegations that have been leveled against his company by dozens of, of, of women now. And th- this guy, this is a guy that has never responded to any of these allegations. As Patricia said, almost no one knew he existed uh, before this year, there's a kind of, kind of accountability gap that we wanted to close by at least putting these allegations to him and seeing what he would say about them. And, and unfortunately, uh, he didn't he didn't say anything. He he just walked off uh, looking very cross. 
So to go into more about how Pornhub operates, the platforms basically make it the victim's responsibility to remove content which features them. Is that right? So, yeah, I mean, what we found is that in in quite a few cases where uh, abusive content had been uploaded to Pornhub, Pornhub was was either late or uh, put other barriers in the way of of removing that content, even when they were, were made aware of it. And so in some cases, you had underage girls whose content had been posted on the site having to pose as their mothers or as lawyers uh, to get the content uh, removed. So really kind of that's the that's the secondary allegation against Pornhub and MindGeek. Not only did they allegedly allow such abusive content to be put, to be placed on the site by not having the controls in place to get rid of it, but subsequently they failed to get rid of it quickly enough because it is argued they just didn't really have an economic interest in in doing so. Their whole business model is based on clicks and on visitor numbers and attracting as many people as possible in order to maximize uh, the data that they collect, which they can then uh, sell on to to, to advertisers. And uh, the lawyers that are representing the victims, including the lawyer that's representing 50 victims that will file a case against Pornhub uh, shortly, they allege that this business model was inherently inconsistent with preventing uh, the dissemination of abusive content. We should say at this point that MindGeek denies any wrongdoing and it hasn't answered requests for comment, just as um, you know, you, you failed to get an answer out of, out of him when he was on the doorstep. It removed 80% of its videos in December 2020. Why did it do that? And has it done and has that helped to, in any sense, clean up the site? Yeah, I mean, you've got to give them credit for, for doing that in a way. They did it under a huge amount of pressure. It followed a, a big bombshell report in the New York Times in, in December 2020 by Nick Kristoff called The Children of Pornhub, which really laid out for the first time the extent to which abusive content was was on the site. Uh, Visa and MasterCard followed up on that article by cutting their services from Pornhub's site. And so they were in a lot of trouble and they had to take extreme action. And one of the extreme actions that they took was to scrub any non-verified videos from the site. To be a verified uh, contributor to Pornhub, you have to go through slightly more rigorous checks than simply providing an email address. So the 80% of the videos that they cut were from the unverified user base. But a lot of campaigners, they still say, well, two points, really. Firstly, the fact that you fix a problem now doesn't kind of obviate your responsibility for the problems that have gone on uh, before. And secondly, there is still quite a lot of very controversial content on that site being driven by Pornhub's algorithms, which work kind of roughly in the same way as, as YouTube or Netflix's algorithms. And I mean, we certainly in our investigation... When we looked at the at the content on on Pornhub, you know, months after they chopped eighty percent of their videos, there was still some some really kind of disturbing evidence of violent or controversial pornography being being suggested to users that kind of had a, a preference for that sort of content. It likes to portray itself as a bit of a public service. In fact, Pornhub. I mean, even a philanthropic element. It raises money for breast cancer charities, for example. And I think during the pandemic. It offered Pornhub Premium for free as a public service for, you know, people who were bored and lonely. So, you know, there is that side to Pornhub, isn't there? We did find a real kind of disconnect in a way between this kind of 
bubbly, friendly, sex-positive image that, that Pornhub wanted to portray, you, you know, and quite effectively. Like, some of these campaigns were genuinely kind of funny and, and innovative. So kudos their their PR team. But, you know, it, it stood in real contrast to the fact that you couldn't really find out anything about this company. You know, when you really looked at it, like the finances were spread over a number of like uh, tax haven jurisdictions. It was owned by investment funds where you couldn't see investors behind the corporate names. So, you know, it did seem like this was effectively a smokescreen being put up by, by a company that was not prepared to be as transparent as you might expect, given its size and its influence. Who should be policing online porn? The impression that we've got in terms of regulation is that a lot of politicians have, uh, in, in recent years anyway, been kind of reluctant to uh, grapple with uh, the issue of online porn. Like everybody knows that people use it. Members of your family will have used it. Teachers at your school will have used it. Ev- everyone is a user of this content, and yet no one really wants to, to look at it, either because they're embarrassed by it or, or they just want to kind of think, okay, well, it goes on, but we don't really want to have to have to deal with it. And I think that what's happened in the last year is that uh, is that legislators and private companies like MasterCard and Visa have been forced through uh, both campaigning journalism and uh, activism, the, the, the women and the, victim themse- the victims themselves, they've been forced to kind of look at this issue head on and say, hold on a second, you know, we don't want a situation where anyone can upload pornographic content to a website without any proof of consent or without any proof that they're underage. And there's enough evidence now to persuade us to introduce laws, for example, like are being considered in Canada at the moment, that place a lot more responsibility on these free porn sites to ensure that the content on them is consensual and that there is no one underage on these videos. In my mind, there has been a free-for-all in the world of online porn in the last few years that has mirrored the free-for-all in other social media sites like like, um, YouTube and like Facebook. But I think the regulators are beginning to realize that they have to deal with online porn as well as with the more mainstream platforms. And if anything the risk of harm on these sites, on these pornographic sites, is even greater than the risk of harm if you post a piece of misinformation or other abusive content to a more mainstream platform. Um, so where are you taking the investigation next? Well, uh, as, as soon as we published, in the days after we published, we, we, we were contacted by a number of people who worked closely with MindGeek or uh, who knew uh, how the company was set up. And they signaled to us uh, something that we'd already been thinking about, which was that there was a lot more to to say about this company. Uh, It's not, of course, the only uh, free porn company. There are other websites uh, that that operate with an equal lack of restraint. But MindGeek is is really interesting. How it works is really interesting. And I think that there's a lot more to say about the people who financed it. And the story of MindGeek and how it came to be what it is today, you know, there's still a lot more to say about that, I think. Alexi and Patricia, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. And you can listen to more about Pornhub on the Tortoise Slow News podcast, which is also available on Spotify and other podcast channels, I believe. 
I'm Ros Taylor and thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts and you can support the show on Patreon too. We'd love it if you did. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. Join us next time for another Bunker Daily. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.